the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Gospel of our Lord. I'm Holmes Grasmick. I'm on staff here at Silverdale Lutheran Church as a pastoral care assistant, and I'm also in my first year of seminary at Luther Seminary, and I'm really grateful for our, to our pastors for the honor and the challenge of uh, preaching tonight as we kick off our Lenten journey together. Well, Pastor Bill gave me an out so that I could select other scriptures, but I can do hard things, and so can you, so let's weigh it into this difficult word together. So now, may the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, what words have grabbed you in your life? Do you have a favorite author or a book that you can't wait to gobble up? Do you have dialogue in a movie that you can say word for word along with all the characters? Well, for me, Pat Conroy, Francis Mays, Michael Andaji are some of my favorite authors, and I find their prose to be lush and ripe and gorgeous, more like poetry sometimes. And I remember some really great words coming out of this sanctuary, too, words that have changed my life, as evidenced by my <laughs> being here in this pulpit. And even our own words can stay with us. Watching someone crumble under our bitter words or melt into our loving ones, can make us shudder and swoon when we recall them. Well, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount hits me like this. It's got so many images and sayings that we can't forget. We've got the Beatitudes, we've got salt and light, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, the Lord's Prayer, 
consider the lilies of the field, all these beautiful sayings and um, references that are just brimming over from this one sermon on the mount. So our gospel is part of Jesus' sermon where a huge crowd has gathered to hear him preach. He's preaching repentance and preparation for the coming of the kingdom of heaven and his words were grabbing people. That he was healing them and grabbing them and they still grab us today. He began this, his first sermon that's recorded in the book of Matthew with maybe the greatest opening line to a sermon ever. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I think about these people that were drawn to Jesus. These were people living under the feet of the Romans. They'd been under the feet of so many tyrants before, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Romans, and their own corrupt kings before that. Many of them were subsistence survivors, and they were dependent on everything going right if their families were even going to eat one meal that day. Many had horrendous physical maladies that not only ruined their quality of life, but they made them unclean under their own religious law and separated them from society. All of them were living under this heavy foot of the law, really working so hard for their righteousness and to be in good standing with their communities and with God. And I don't know about you, but I just can imagine how exhausted and futile they might have been feeling. So here comes Jesus giving them this long, cool drink of water. The coming of the kingdom of heaven was not something to be received by only the most pious, by the most worthy, by the best law keepers. The kingdom of heaven was for the poor in spirit. We can imagine how these words would have washed and refreshed these first century people who were sitting at his feet. And because these words are still alive and active today, let's see how they land among us right now tonight. Maybe the poor in spirit are those of us who don't always feel like we have a great faith or those of us who are confused by his sometimes seemingly contradictory lessons and parables. Maybe this word is for those of us who know that we're unable to believe and we rely on our gifted faith to trust that Jesus can help our unbelief. Maybe it's for people who received God's promises in their baptism, but whose hearts have moved further and further away from him. And maybe it's for those of us who worried about our loved ones who've moved further away from him. Maybe it's for those of us who are captive to sin and can't free ourselves, and those of us who can't forgive a transgressor, transgressor much less ourselves. Well, does that get just about everybody in this room and watching from home? <laughs> Well, God's own anointed King David wrote our responsive psalm after he sinned by taking advantage of the married Bathsheba and killing her husband, which was a horrible, complex sin of coveting, adultery, murder. And really, it was against, uh, it was violence against Bathsheba herself because she couldn't consent to this powerful King David because of their, powerful, their power differential. But when Nathan showed David his sin, he was cut to the core, and these gorgeous and haunting and relevant through the ages words of Psalm 51 poured out of his broken heart. I know about my wrongs, and I can't forgive my sin. The sacrifice God wants is a broken spirit. God, you will not reject a heart that is broken and sorry for sin. 
I love our extended confession on Ash Wednesday, beginning with confessing to God and to one another and before the whole company of heaven that we have sinned by our fault, by our own fault, by our own most grievous fault. Those words grievous and fault are like sand and hot peppers on my tongue. But when we invoke God's mercy and we're given it in absolution, that rinses and cools my poor miserable tongue. God's active word forgives us whether we can grasp it or not, whether we can forgive or not. We're forgiven because God's word says so. It makes it so. And we have the promise that even a mustard seed of faith is sufficient to receive the entirety of this forgiveness. So that is the elevating difference between Jesus' words and Shakespeare's and all the other great writers in history. Jesus' words make it so, especially for the poor in spirit. Well, in his sermon, Jesus warns against the religious and the social elite who flaunt their piety. They flaunt their prayer lives, their big offerings, and in this honor-shame society of the first century, you had to show how honorable you were just to make sure people knew that you weren't shameful. And because they're supposed to be the new role models for Jesus' new way, maybe the disciples thought that that was the way they needed to act as well. But Jesus quickly nipped that in the bud, didn't he? But it's confusing because in the same sermon, Jesus tells his disciples to let their light shine so others can see their good works and give glory to God. So what is it? Are we supposed to hide it? Are we supposed to show it? <laughs> well, one commentator I read said, if you feel like showing it, hide it. And if you feel like hiding it, show it. <laughs> well, this is a slippery slope that I think many people think Christians live on yet. In the Beatitudes, a few verses before, Jesus said that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. I think about my beloved author, Pat Conroy, how he might have penned this verse, because the Greek word for filled has a sense of being satiated, saturated. I can hear Nick Nolte's rich, slow, southern-accented Prince of Tides voice say, steeped and overflowing are those whose hunger and thirst for righteousness wrings them out, for they will be saturated with it. Hunger and thirst aren't biological responses that we can control. We're designed by our creator to hunger and thirst for what we need. Perhaps hungering and thirsting for righteousness can be looked at the same way. We were designed to need it. We're not designed to gin it up or to flaunt our success at finding it. In fact, we don't find it, but we're gifted it, and then we take it out for a spin in our Christian freedom when we serve and love our neighbors in response rather than as a demonstration. Isn't that a cool drink that quenches right there? St. Augustine summed it up with these lush words. Great are you, O Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense and your wisdom beyond reckoning, and so we people who are a due part of your creation, long to praise you. We also carry our mortality around with us. We carry the evidence of our sin and with it the proof that you thwart the proud. You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
Well, we North American Lutheran Christians from the Pacific Northwest are all too happy to pray in solitude rather than lead public prayer or to talk very openly about our faith. Unlike modern televangelists, most American Lutheran Christians don't really have the same problem that the first century pious had where they flaunted their prayers and their religious fervor to show their righteousness. But I wonder if we've taken Jesus' corrective a little bit too far because not talking about Jesus and our faith lies in opposition to the command that Jesus gives us at the end of Matthew to baptize and to teach about him. Jesus doesn't command an elaborate religious crusade or a tent revival. He just says, teach and baptize. I'm excited that this year our Lenten worship is going to include members of our congregation sharing your stories, your faith stories, and I can't wait to hear them. Well, Jesus is preparing his disciples, the 12, the people gathered around him listening to a Sermon on the Mount, and all of us readers through the centuries for taking his good news of the kingdom of heaven out on the road. And modern surveys of the church show time and time again that evangelism has proven to be most effective when we humbly listen to each other's stories and we share our own when we're invited to do so. Well, two Sundays ago, <coughs> Pastor Bill talked about our two brains, our upstairs brains and our downstairs brains. If you remember, upstairs is where our better angels live, and our downstairs brain is really where our lizard brain lives. I think like in the scriptures two weeks ago, Jesus is saying that if you keep making a show of yourself as a way to uh, be righteous, you better just think again. But our lizard brain keeps working on our justification, and Fortunately, though, it knows its limitations and it drives us to the cross. The cross is where our justification will actually happen. And I think Jesus is saying, just relax. Your job is done now, and so just let me do mine. In the meantime, he gives our upstairs brain instructions for what living in the freedom of justification looks like because even in the freedom of the gospel, we are still comforted by the weighted blanket and the boundaries of the law. Well, our gospel selection ends with, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. For where, excuse me, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We can each take an individual look at the things that we've given our hearts to, like Luther says, things that have become our idols. But on Ash Wednesday, I think we should look at the thing that I think is the biggest idol for us humans, and that is our lizard brain's, lizard brain's temptation towards self-justification. When we self-justify, we are forgetting Paul's great confession in Romans 8, these lush words saturated with grace. As beloved children of God, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. These ashes on our foreheads are signs of our sin, visible in the mirror and to each other, and they remind us just how poor in spirit we are. The mark makes us feel vulnerable and self-conscious, and maybe if we go out tonight, other people outside our walls will think that we're pious hypocrites when we see it. We'll wash them off tonight when we're ready to go to bed. But in truth, it's really just a cosmetic cleansing because we were already washed in our baptism.
We were scrubbed at the beginning of our service tonight in the words of our absolution. And when we receive Holy Communion, it'll be like taking a cool shower after working in the hot sun. Not being able to share our faith story or worship or pray as we ought or perform acts of service or tithe, it'll keep popping up on our foreheads and making us feel unworthy. But at the same time, these human frailties will never be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Wondering if we've truly forgiven a transgression, if we have true repentance in our heart, doubting if we have enough faith, it will never be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Going back to that point in time when we said something regretful or left something important undone and it haunts us, not being able to forgive ourselves, none of it can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Being angry, being behind in school, being addicted, depressed, being overwhelmed or despairing, it can never separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. As our epistle says, Christ Jesus our Lord, who knew no sin, became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those amazing words are a dagger in the heart, but at the same time, they're the medicine that heals the stab wound. Jesus became our sin, and for no good reason other than he loves us, and in exchange, he saturated us, he soaked us, he satiated us in his promise that we sinful creatures of poor spirit, we are worthy citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and nothing can ever separate us from these gifts that we have received through Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.